If you have your scriptures with you, please open them to uh, Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to continue our study in uh, the seven, seven things that God uh, hates. I think we live in a, a very difficult cultural moment. Uh, I know that there's a lot of you, I've talked to many of you about the changes in our culture. It seems like things are just going very rapidly in many different directions, not just in the United States, but globally. We're seeing the migrations of millions, literally, of people from one place to another. And whole countries, uh, the complexion of these countries are changing, and cultures are changing. And even here in the United States, uh, we're seeing uh, through the passage of various laws and other things, uh, the changing of our culture. And I think that when these things happen, it's very easy to look back. Hindsight, as they say, is 2020. Uh, but part of the prophetic ministry that we enjoy from the Holy Spirit is that He can actually show us and enlighten us to what our personal time and space uh, contains, the cultural moment that we as people are facing, and then how in wisdom... And with the power of the gospel, engage the world that we live in, engage the culture that we live in. And nowhere do we find more clarity, I think, than in the Proverbs. Proverbs gives us the quintessential teaching of wisdom in Scripture. The book of Proverbs was written to youth. It was written to young people, people that uh, are anywhere from... Uh, five, six years old on up to their teenage years. And the sage, the wise father and the wise mother is speaking to these young people to encourage them to listen and to observe and to compare the this with that of the world around them so that they can make decisions and take a path that will lead them to righteousness and to goodness. We often find, however, that we leave that path and the paths are not that close together. The, the righteous path is like I told you last week, goes this way, but the other path goes at a, at a divergent angle. They're not just a little fork in the road and they kind of run together close. So if you mess up and you look, oh well, the path of righteousness is right there, I'll just step right over. No, often we find ourselves very far away into folly and foolishness. And I don't know how many of us, I have, have woken up at different times in my life. It's like someone threw on the light. Have you ever walked into a room and you flip on the light switch and, and as your, your eyes become accustomed to the light in the room, you notice there are things in the room that don't belong. You know, they're two, three inches long and they have these antennae and legs and they're creepy looking. And you know, they're stunned by the light too. And you know, they'll often scurry off because they need to be in the darkness. And what the Proverbs does is it turns on a light in our life so that you can see the dark and despicable and ugly things that are there. And drive them out of your life and push them out. So we're going to look at at Proverbs 6 uh, for the next few weeks. And uh, let me read it again. We're just going to start in verse 12. And uh, there's a passage. The passage is in your bulletin. If you didn't bring your Bible, if you have your Bible, we, we hope you'll use that. 
but let me read uh, starting in verse 12 and uh, hear the word of God. The worthless person or scoundrel is one of the translations. A wicked man, a villain, goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes and signals with his feet. He points with his fingers and with a perverted heart devises evil. He is continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, and a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is the word of the Lord. The sage describes a lot of different people, and in this passage he is describing a worthless and a wicked man. This is an abomination to God, a despicable person, a person who is a scoundrel. In other words, down to their bones, they are evil and wicked. And let me say this at the very beginning. I'm persuaded that most of you are not this man. When you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, He changes who you are down to your spiritual DNA. That's what we call the new birth. You are born again. You are born from above. And your life takes on a completely different flavor and complexion. And you never become that old person again, hopefully. But the idea is that even though the sage is describing somebody whom you are not, we can get caught up in the folly or foolishness of those wicked people. And we find it happening all the time. And we we can go down that path and wake up. And God wakes us up. Believe me, He's waked me up I don't know how many times. And He wakes us up to our folly and to our foolishness. He opens the light. He turns it on. And we see all those despicable creatures in our life. And He wants you to see them. He wants you to drive them out. And be aware of the destruction and the uncleanness that they bring into the environment that He has created. And so, we're going to look. Dr. Derek Kidner divides the seven. He compresses them into five. And the five that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks are, first of all, attitude. That's this first verse in 17. He talks about haughty eyes. Then we're going to talk about thought. That's in verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans. And we're going to talk about our words, lying speech and false witness. And then our deeds, our actions, hands that shed innocent blood. And finally, in the last week, we're going to talk about feet, our, our, uh, and our, our influence, which is sowing discord among brethren. So our attitude, our thought, our words, deeds, and influence. Those five, that's how I'm going to break them down following Dr. Kidner. 
Uh, Today we're going to talk about our attitude. The attitude of our heart, which is what haughty eyes is talking about. Haughty haughty eyes are... uh, uh, is a poetic device that describes the folly, listen, the folly of arrogance and pride. Arrogance and pride. Arrogance and pride are one of those things everybody knows what they are. Nobody likes it. Even people that are prideful and arrogant don't like it. We all know it when we see it and nobody likes it. But pride is very subtle. It finds its way, it weaves its way into everybody's life in one degree or another. And so we're going to look today at the folly of arrogance and pride. And it's such a vast subject. I don't know if we can cover it all in, in, in the next uh, two, three hours. I don't know what it's going to look like. But no, I'll try to keep it around 30 minutes. But, w- but we're just going to be able to skim the surface. So I hope that uh, afterwards, when we have our, you know, our adult Sunday school, you'll stay around. We'll talk a little bit more about it. Uh, but what is, uh, under these three headings, we'll do it this way. What is the allure of pride and arrogance? If we all don't like it, how come it is so alluring to us? And it's used so very often in our life. What's the allure? What is the damage? The second part. What is the damage that pride does? So we're going to look at its allure, but we're also going to look at the damage uh, that it does. And then finally, I'm going to give you some remedies, I think some ways that uh, we are to combat pride, uh, the remedy of pride. So the allure. Let's go with the first one. The allure of pride. What is arrogance and pride? You know, in the Bible, there are many, many words that refer to arrogance and pride. I found over ten in the Old Testament, New Testament, and all these words all refer to pride and arrogance. And without exception, I only found two where the word is actually used in a positive light. See, you can have good pride. I am very proud of my children. And I, 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 I think the world of them. I'm very proud of my church. I'm very proud of the officers that serve in this church. I'm very proud of some of you who have have stepped up and served your church. There's a good kind of pride. I'm very proud of our nation when it acts righteously and justly. I went to the change of command ceremony for uh, Colonel O'Connor, Dave and Carol's son-in-law who's here, and uh, at the brigade command. And it was a a time of immense pride, you know, with the martial music and the flags and the soldiers. And you see all these people are given their life to serving their country. And you swell with pride. Those are good things. Those are not bad things. But then there's a bad kind of pride. And sometimes they overlap. And we have to be wise in how we look at them and how we let them uh, work their way into our life. But the sage, the writer of this, is not talking about a good kind of pride. He's talking about haughty eyes. Now what this means, the, the poetic device that he's using, he's using ancient Near East language, and he's talking about a great king. Many of you have seen these pictures of these great kings, the pharaohs. Okay, the ancient Near East kings like Nebuchadnezzar and the statues of these kings are very telling. You know, they're very tall. They're all very tall. We don't really know how. They may have been four and a half feet. I mean, we don't know how tall they really were. 
But in their statues, they're very tall and they have long, powerful necks and they stand very erect and they're often on a platform like but much higher than this. They would have been up on a platform and they would have stretched out their neck and they would have put their head back and they would have closed their eyes a little bit out of disdain for the people they're looking at like this. And they would have looked... And they would have gone way back like that so that they could look down their long nose at those who are below them. Do you see? That is what the haughty eyes, the image, it was so rich. We don't get it in English. What in the world is he talking about? Are they hot? Are they kind of warm? Are they over 100 degrees? You know, what, what are haughty eyes? No, they're not haughty. They're hot. T. All right? They're prideful eyes. They're eyes that look down at other people and see people in a certain way. Haughty. Excessive sense of self-importance. I am better than you. I am greater than you. I have more power than you. I have more authority. I have more money. I'm better looking than you. You know, these statues, we don't really know if they looked that good. They may have actually been ugly people. They weren't photographs. And whoever was carving them was probably being very careful to make them look good because his life was in danger. Right? And so they presented themselves in the very best light. And isn't that what we all do? Don't we all do that on Sunday morning, folks? I know what it's like to be in the church parking lot. I am parked out there. And I get on the car, I get out, I get to make sure everything's together. Is this up? Is that down? Is this over here? Is that over there? Because I want to present the best possible image. I can't, I don't look anything like I did at 5 a.m. this morning. And a good thing, you wouldn't want it to see that. But you get the idea. Pride, listen to this folks, pride distorts our view of ourselves. And it distorts other people's view of us. Pride, overestimation, presumption, is something that God says is contemptible to Him. He abhors it or He hates it. We're going to talk about that in a moment. About is, it capable, is God capable of hatred? And He says, yes, I hate this. Ask yourself the simple question, why does he hate pride? Why? The simple answer is this. Because God is the only being, think about it for a moment, in all the universe who actually can look down and see you all the way to the bottom. Yes? No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you try to get it all together, He actually sees you all the way to the bottom. He knows things about you that you don't even know about yourself. And He sees them clearly with no veneer. He knows how ugly they are. He has seen the light. He is the light. He's turned it on. He knows what that cockroach looks like in your life. Better than you do. And the most amazing part of it is 
that He loves you. The light that He brings is to do one thing. Dispel what? The darkness. Drive out those ugly dark things. To push them out. To save you from the unclean and the dirty and the filthy. The wicked and the worthless and the perverse. That's what He's about. He's not trying to bring shame or guilt. In fact, if you think about it for one minute, shame and guilt is very much in the top of God's cone of certainty. Yes? Those of you that are in my theology class, you know. What's up there in the top of His cone of certainty? Did you ever ask yourself that? It's guilt and shame. And you know what He put in the top of His cone of certainty? He put a cross. That is our great God. That is the kind of love that He expresses. That is the light that He turns on to dispel the darkness, that that encroaching, killing, destroying pride that can allure us and take us away from the righteousness of God. It distorts who we are. He knows us to the bottom and He still loves us. We don't know who we are and we're always trying to fake it and trying to be something else that we're not and put out a cover and and fool everybody and it looks like pride and it looks like self-righteousness. The allure of pride, folks, is simply dissatisfaction with who we are and a desire to paint a better image because we know there should be a better image. We know what we look like at 5 a.m. and we don't like it. And so we work hard for the next however many hours it takes to make ourselves look presentable so that when we come to church, people are not shocked by who we really are. And that's okay. I mean, obviously, we don't want to come like that, right? Yikes. But there is beneath that the reality That when we are engaged in constantly putting up a front so nobody knows who you are. In fact, some of us, we actually are married to people we don't know completely. Or we try to keep our own spouses, we our own children. We don't even know our own kids sometimes. But God knows you all the way and He loves you still. The allure of pride, this dissatisfaction with self, this need for autonomy and control so that we can manipulate who we are to appear to others better than what we are. And it's all uh, a terrible, terrible uh, condition that can make you uh, feel like you are in despair. Our original parents... Think about this. Pride is not just in the purview of sinners and fallen people. Guess who succumbed to the first offer of pride? Who do you think it was? Adam and Eve. And they were not like we unfortunately are, fallen people. They were created in the image of God and there was no sin in their life. And even they succumb to pride. Because in paradise, that's the reason that story is there, folks. In paradise, they still were discontent. 
even having everything they needed and the perfect presence of God in their life and life pulsating from their body, there was still, not because God had made them imperfect, but because something is charged into the life of human beings. God put it there. We are to be bearers of His glory. And unfortunately, that can work for our good and it can work for our bad. And our parents were unsatisfied with what God had given them. And so they reached out, they listened to the lie of the serpent. And the lie of the serpent was, God has said you will live if you do this. I'm going to tell you, you will not die. And look, he's asking you, young people think, this is what the sage is selling. You are to look, he's writing to young people, and he's saying, young people, before it's too late, before your eyes get crusty and you only see things one way, while you're still able to look both ways, look. Look at the beauty, look at the truth, and look at the lie. But our parents, the serpent said, God knows that your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman, listen to what the text says, the woman was convinced. And she looked at the tree. Listen. And she saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit good to eat. What could possibly be wrong with wanting to know the difference between good and evil? God knows the difference, yes. The tree itself was not a bad tree. God put it in the garden and simply said, don't eat from that tree. I want to be the mediator to you of goodness and evil. I will mediate that to you. And instead, they decided of their own accord, and listen, you Calvinists, of their own free will, they used the freedom of their will that God had gave them to go against Him and enter into folly and pride. And in so doing, lost the freedom of their will. Yes? They lost it. She took, she ate, she gave it to her husband. You see, folks, we were created in the image of God. We were made to know beauty and goodness. There's a certain good kind of pride. We were to see ourselves as the image bearers of God. But the minute you see yourself as an image bearer, not of God, but of yourself, you become a humanist. And a humanist has pride in himself, in his own humanity. And it becomes very dangerous. So pride distorts and breaks that image. What is the damage? Well, let's look at a few things. Let me, let me answer the question. Is God capable of hate? Can He hate? I remember uh, being at a, a Ligonier conference with Dr. R.C. Sproul. And I wish I could impersonate Dr. Sproul. He does a perfect co Columbo. He's Columbo. Y'all remember uh, Peter Falk, and he would why? And R.C. does him perfectly. I'm not sure if it's R.C. doing him, or maybe Columbo, maybe Peter Falk is doing R.C., I don't know. But he would march up and down, he's all covered with chalk because he likes to write on the chalkboard. And he, goes, and he says, people ask me, is it possible for God to hate? Is it possible that God could really love Esau and hate 
Jacob. What if he does? So what if he does hate Esau? What are you going to do about it? Well, I can't believe that God could possibly hate somebody. Well, what if he does? Well, but God is love. Yeah, but what if he hates? What are you going to do about it? So how do you reconcile that? Does God really hate? Well, you know, I'm not R.C., so I'm not going to answer your question. I am going to say this, that whatever it means, it means what it means. Yes? Can you say yes to that? So how do we understand it? Well, here's one way, and thank God for theology. That's why I love theology. There is such a thing called an anthropopathism. Don't you love that word? How many of you love that word? Nah, not that many. What the heck's he talking about? Anthropomorphism. Do you know what that is? Anthropomorphism is attributing a human characteristic, a physical characteristic to God. In other words, you read in the Bible over and over again that God has eyes, that he has ears, that he has a nose he can smell, uh, that he has arms. In fact, sometimes it says he has wings. I mean, my goodness, what are we talking about here? So what is an anthropomorphism? An anthropomorphism is simply God using human language to describe something about himself that you would not understand otherwise. You with me? So when God says, I love you, that's an anthropopathism. That's an attribution of an emotion to God, a being whom is on all accounts uh, incomprehensible. So what he's doing is he's using human language to make himself apprehensible so that you can understand. And so he says things like, I love you. I'm jealous for you. I'm angry with you. I'm disappointed in what you did. I have wrath. I hate. So what we know is that whatever God's talking about, whatever love is, let me, let me put it this way, folks. I do believe that God loves us. But whatever it is, it's beyond anything that the word, the human word love can possibly convey to you and I. Yes? Are you willing to agree with me on that? Whatever he's saying about love, he is conveying something to you and I that is far beyond any possibility that the human word love can convey. And when he says hate, he's talking about something that you and I cannot even imagine how much he abhors that. He's talking about something completely different. When he's talking about love, the only way that he can describe it is to say something like this. I love you this way. Not this much. Because you can't put an amount. Okay? He says, here's how much I love you. Or, this is the way I love you. I will give my son for you. All of a sudden now, love has gone into outer space. Yes? There's no way for the human word love to convey that. Here's how I love you. This is the way I love you. I love you so, this way, that I give my son for you. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, 
pride and arrogance is something I loathe, I despise, because it damages you. It hurts you. It hurts others. It destroys the image of God that I have put in you. It distorts it. And it makes it something that it's not meant to be. And so you have these statues that clearly do not represent whoever that person really and truly was. And that person, whoever he really and truly was, was taking that power that he extracted from the carving of that image and was using it to crush down the people below him and lesser than him. And so pride is reprehensible. It is loathsome to God because He, of all the beings in the world, is actually seeing things as they really are. And so He wants us to have a right assessment. Someone said this, listen, sins of attitude, like pride, they cannot, they cannot remain internalized. They come out. You can't keep them inside. These sins of attitude, they come out. They come out in our speech, boasting, lying, conceit. They come out of our eyes, the way we look, even the, the way we squint or the way we wink or the way we look, at, we look with disdain. You can actually look at somebody's eyes and you can tell if they are open and they're looking at you with kindness or if they're looking at you with disdain or they're looking at you with anger. Right? The eyes are the window to the soul. They show us what's going on. So he's being very literal. At the same time, he's being very figurative. He's saying the eyes, how you see, what you see of yourself and of others can distort who you really are. The way we look at our self, excessive self-esteem, or the way we look at others, we hold others in contempt and malice and envy and jealousy, and this is the thing that is so disturbing, the political rhetoric in our country is becoming hateful. We don't just disagree with people because of their political stance. We hate their guts and liver, as John Wayne used to say. We hate their guts and liver. We hate them personally. And God is saying, you know, you've got to separate that. You, my people, must separate those anger and hatred and venom. You've got to be able to separate it from what really is because I'm looking at things differently and I want you to see what I see. And if you can do that, it'll make you a different kind of person. It won't make you less tolerant of evil. In fact, you'll actually do something about it. Instead of just wanting to murder and bomb everybody into oblivion. Yes? That's not the answer to just destroy everybody we hate. If God, who knows us, treated us that way, what would have happened to you and I? That's the question. And pride will say, here's what pride will say, and here's the danger, folks. Listen to me. The danger is, oh, He never would have destroyed me. I'm a... What? I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than them at least. Well, you know what? We need to talk, folks. Because in about two seconds, the Bible can show you you're no better. All have sinned and what? All have sinned and fallen short of glory to God. We're not talking about a God who grades on a curve. 
We're talking about a God who is utterly and completely just and righteous and holy. And one infraction of His law condemns a human being. And justly so. And if you're like me, I mean, I've got years of trouble. I have no way of going back and fixing all that. Now maybe you're much better than me, but I kind of doubt it. I can't deal with the, the, the debt I owe. I have no way of dealing with that debt, and neither do you. And so let's be honest. God is saying you have, God is simply telling you you have no way of dealing with the debt. I see you has, how you are. I want you to look and see others as they are, and I want it to change who you are. Yes? Can you say amen? That's good. That's great. Boy, I want to jump up and down, but then I'll be, who knows what will happen to me. Might become a, an exciting, charismatic Presbyterian <laughs> instead of a dull one. No, no. I mean, get, think about that. That's exciting for you. He wants to go down deep into your heart and change who you are. Not so you put up with evil. In fact, it'll make you more aware of evil. In your own heart and in the heart of others, you'll actually become, you'll actually want to do something about society. You'll want to go out and vote. Good, let's go vote for good candidates. Just candidates that are righteous and just. Let's go out there and work for the political system. Let's help the poor. Let's do whatever we have to do to float El Paso a little higher than it is. Yes? That's what he's calling us to do as a church. And I'll tell you, when we move into that new building, folks, we've got to get busy. That's a whole neighborhood out there. There's there's hardly any churches out there. Have you all driven out there? There's hardly any churches. That's exciting. We've got to hurry up and make hay before the other ones come. <laughs> Arrogance and pride will take you this way. Let me give you this quickly. It's going to take you two directions. Arrogance and pride is going to say this. I'm a pretty good person. God owes me. Or it can take you the other direction and say, you know, I'm pretty bad. God hates me. And both of those are nothing less than pride. We think the other one is humble. Oh, God hates me. I'm such a bad person. I'm so terrible. He could never save me. Oh, really? You're that bad. That's pretty prideful. Or God owes me. You know, I'm a pretty good person. I've done pretty good. I haven't done that much bad. I mean, I can, I, you know, and we start to play this game with the scales and, you know, whatever and everything. Jesus told the story, the man that owes me, God owes me. Jesus told the story of those who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned, by the way, that's one of the words for pride, scorned everyone else. Two men went in the temple to pray. You've heard this story, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee says this, I thank you. He walks right up to the front, bold as brass, comes right to the front, right in God's face, and he says this, he looks right up into the temple, and he says, I thank you, God, I'm not a sinner like everyone else. I don't cheat. I don't sin. I don't commit adultery. And I'm certainly not like that tax collector back there. I tithe of all my income. I fast twice in the week. But the tax collector stood far off. And was afraid to lift his eyes up. 
And he prayed thus. He beat his chest. And he said, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus stepped up and he said, I tell you this. That man went away justified. He went to his home justified, made right with God because of his humility and his penance, his brokenness, his heart of sorrow. And the Pharisee went away bearing all his guilt. God owes you absolutely nothing. And you should thank God that He owes you nothing because you could never pay Him for what He owes, for what we owe. And so therefore, wisdom will tell you, pride will lead you in that direction, God owes me, but wisdom will say, no, no, no. I can't pay Him back. But wisdom is also going to keep you from making the other mistake and saying, God hates me. The other one, God hates me. We saw at the very beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. Listen to what happened to our original parents after they sinned. The very first words, and in Hebrew it's very telling. This is how it sounds in Hebrew. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves. They made themselves loincloths. They heard His voice. They hid. It repeats the word they, they, they. They had separated themselves from God and they went out of their way to do what? To hide from God. Why? Because they knew the word naked and they didn't want God to see them. They thought He would hate them. Do you see it? And instead of God's eyes coming down into the garden and saying this, this should have been His words. He should have said, I see you. What did He say instead? What? Where are you? He could have entered the garden and say, I see you. And instead He comes into the garden and in an anthropomorphic, anthropopathic statement, He doesn't say, I see you. He says, where are you? Your heart should melt when you read those words. Do you hear them? They are grace-filled words. They're words of kindness, words of love. Like a parent looking for their naughty child who has just broken a priceless vase you know, that belonged to grandma and they're hiding. And the parent walks in the backyard and he sees the child cowering, knowing where they are. And instead of saying, I see you back there, you get out here, you naughty child, you broke that priceless vase and you're going to pay. The parent says, where are you, my sweet, my love? My child. Words of grace. Words of love. Words of kindness. Where are you? He could have said, I see you. He said, I don't see you. I want you. Where are you? Come back to me. Pride will distort that image. It will take you to a place where you think God owes you or that God hates you and He doesn't either. He sees you and He still loves you. And that brings us to the remedy. I've got to go quickly. Folks, look, there's four things you can do. Here's what I want you to do. Write them down. Think about these. Four things that you can do. First of all, 
you can take an inner look. And I'm hoping that this morning each of you will do it. Because everyone here, including me, we have these cockroaches going around in our life. You know, you turn on the light, they're there, they're pride. And some of you may be struggling with the pride of, of self-importance. You know, I'm a pretty good person. I come to church every week and, I, you know, I tithe and I do this. Some of you may be thinking, you know, God can't possibly, He knows what I did last night. He can't possibly love me. And I'm telling you, both of those are a lie. Take the inner look. And whatever you see there, whatever darkness you see, whether it's God hates you, God loves you, whatever you think it is, that he's, uh, you're high and exalted, He owes me, or He can't possibly live, whatever that is, both of those are a lie. He wants you to take the inner look and repent. And believe the Gospel. Take an inner look. You have open eyes. He's made you wise. Take the inner look. See yourself. As God sees you. Jack Miller, Dr. Jack Miller said this, Cheer up! You're more sinful, more weak, more evil than you ever dared to believe. (laughs) Cheer up! But cheer up. You are more loved, more valued, more more accepted than you ever dared believe possible, ever imagined. Yes, you're more sinful, more dark. Yeah, there's all that bad stuff, but there's also the love of God in your life. He loves you. Take the inner look. That's what you'll see. Secondly, take an outer look. Look around this room. Look outside in our city. Look in our culture. People are broken and wounded and hurting. You do not know, as Hannah Anaya said in our, in our Sunday school class a couple weeks ago, we don't know what kind of the brilliant thing. This is why the youth, there's hope for them, folks. This young girl said, we don't know what kind of hurts are in people's lives. How could we possibly condemn them? We don't know what their stories hold. What wisdom in a young lady. Yes? Amazing. Look around. Look look inside, but look out. Look at others. I don't know what kind of pain is in your life, and you don't know what's in my life. We all have these things we struggle with. And we should be looking with compassion, hoping that we can reach in and be part of the answer, part of the light, yes? So look inside. Look outside at others. See see others as God sees them. Broken, frail, messed up people. Take an upper look. Look inside, look outside, look up. What do you see when you look up? When you read about the God of the Bible, you see something that is terrifyingly beautiful. Terrifying in that He is a just and righteous judge who has absolutely said on every page of His Bible that He will judge unrighteousness and wickedness and spare nothing. It will be a lake of fire. It will be brimstone. It will be horrific beyond anything we can possibly imagine. That He is going to judge wickedness in that way. And it is beautiful At the same time, in that He has said, I will Myself go down into that furnace of burning heat and darkness and death. I'll do it on a cross and I'll do it for you so that I can bring you out of that furnace. Yes? Out of that grave. Out of the darkness. Out of the pit. You look 
inside, you look outside, you look up at God. Where, folks, where do those two things meet? The wrath, the justice of God, and the love and kindness of God. They meet only one place in only one religion. There's nothing like it on the face of this planet. They meet in the cross of Jesus Christ. There and there only is pride and arrogance, self-love and self-hatred conquered in the cross. Look in, look out, look up, and then look finally at the cross. And what do you see on the cross, folks? You see someone who was exalted in, cre- in all of this creation. All that you know, there was a being who was so exalted, so high, and so lifted up. The Bible calls Him the Son of God. And this great Son of God, whoever and whatever that all means, was seated at the right hand of God in the favored place. And the Father asked the Son, will you go rescue My people who are in bondage to their pride and their wickedness. Will you go? And that son stood up, not a hesitation. He stood up and he said, I will go for them. A body, prepare for me. And I will go. Your will I will do, O Lord. I will do your will. What a Savior, my friend. What a God we have. Have this same attitude in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus, though He was God, did not think equality with God something to cling to, but instead He gave up His divine privileges, took the humble position of a slave. He was born a human being. He appeared in the human form. He humbled Himself in obedience to God. He died as a criminal. Even death, it says, on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted Him, gave Him the highest honor, gave Him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you want to find your true self? Do you want to be all that you can be, as the saying goes? Do you really want to find true peace and harmony in your soul so that pride isn't making you a slave, so sin doesn't rule you? You will only find it by looking to Him and finding your identity in that humble man who's not just a man, but Jesus Christ the Lord. Yes, find that and you conquer pride. You kill it. And every time you flip the light on and you see one, you pop it and it's gone. And hopefully after a while they get less and less. Though more will come. But you can get them. Look up. Look out. Look inside. And look at the cross. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, When I think of where I was and where you brought me, and it was only by looking at that cross and Jesus Christ, the King, that I found freedom. And I know we can all find it. No matter where we are today, 
Everyone here, Father, can find that freedom in Jesus Christ. So as we come to your table, we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith. Please, Holy Father, do it for your great namesake, I pray. In, in Christ's name, amen.